Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. I'm going to encourage you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 25, verse 19 is where we will begin. And if you were just joining us, let me catch you up in about 40 seconds. Here we go. We are now in part number nine of an ongoing series that we are calling Patriarchs and Matriarchs. And where we have been over these last two months has been a journey, a pilgrimage, where we have been attempting to walk with the mothers and fathers of the faith. As we see the mothers and fathers of the faith in Genesis demonstrate what it looks like to discover the call of God, to say yes to a pilgrimage into the unknown, and then from time to time fall flat on their face. And the reason we're looking is not to learn how to fall because we know how to do that, but to learn how to get up how to get up and and live in this rhythm of faith in which we are prone to fall and get back up and fall right back down. And the hope, the hope is that in this journey that we are making with the patriarchs and matriarchs, we discover something about our own journey that deepens us, something that widens us, that lengthens our faith so that every week, week by week, we become better followers of Jesus because of it. Now, each week, I have been giving you some chapters to be reading, and at the bottom right-hand corner of your worship guide, those are the chapters that you're to read for the following week, and this week, we had three. We had a lengthy passage of Scripture, three chapters, and we're going to dig into one part in chapter 25, beginning in verse 19. Listen to these words. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aran, sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, And the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If if it's to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out all red, all his body like a hairy mantle, so they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Jacob. 
Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. The reading of the sacred word. It's reliable and can be trusted. Let's pray together. God, in these few moments that we have together here, we pray that your spirit would help us to see you today. That your spirit living in us and among us would help us to hear you today. We pray that in seeing and hearing you, something shifts in us that makes all the difference. As we attempt to understand your sacred word, we pray that you would lift from the shoulders of all of your worshipers any burden that keeps us from freely and fully being present with you right here and right now. Clear our minds, unclutter our hearts so that we may truly worship you in this study. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So here is the scene. Abraham is dead. Last week we recognized that Sarah had died. The first matriarch and now the first patriarch are both dead. These are the two to whom God first approached with the invitation to pilgrimage, come and follow me and I will bless you. I will give you land and children and a name that nobody stops talking about. <laughs> and they were the ones that demonstrated what it looked like in the very beginning to follow in the way of this particular kind of God, to walk by faith on a pilgrimage that is unpredictable and absolutely filled with peril and difficulty and struggle and extraordinary hope. And now they're dead. They're both dead, making, making true the hymn that we just sang a moment ago, the second verse of which reads this way. Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all her sons away. They fly forgotten as the dream dies at the opening day. They're gone. Which raises the question once again. Every week the question is raised, will the promise live? This promise that was given to them, and now they are gone. Will the promise continue to live? It's a theme that keeps recurring. You notice as we trace it from week to week, there is a theme in the stories about the patriarchs. The theme is there is a promise that's made. But then something happens, and the promise is threatened. Someone is either barren, or, or there's a famine, or there is a, a scandal, or, or somebody dies, and it's threatened. Will this promise live? But then if you continue reading, you find out that there is a promise made, a promise threatened, but then a promise kept. It's the recurring pattern all through the patriarchal narratives, but I, but I hope that it's not lost on you as you continue to read through the rest of the sacred word. I hope it's not lost on you that that same pattern that from time to time we call the 
Paschal mystery, the rising and falling and rising again of life, continues all through the rest of the sweeping themes of Scripture itself. So this promise that is made and the promise that gets threatened and the promise that gets kept after all is not just for individuals, but it gets made also to whole groups of peoples, nations. Ultimately, in the New Testament, we see it lived out because on Christmas morning, the promise is made. On Good Friday, the promise is threatened as that promise is nailed to a tree and laid in a borrowed tomb, right? But on the third day, with the resurrection of our Lord, the promise is kept. And that promise that continues to be kept, we have to remember this, and it's critical that we remember this, because it doesn't just stop with the stories of Scripture. It keeps going in your life and mine. This is the pattern of our faith journey. There is a promise, and most of us at some point or another believe it. We say, yeah, I buy it. I'm in, and we follow. But somewhere along the way, the, the promise is threatened, and that's when so many of us just jump off the train. Can't take it, that's enough. If it's gonna be threatened, I'm, but we got to stay on it long enough to recognize that the promise that gets threatened, even through seasons of threat, will ultimately be kept. And now we come to Jacob. Here we are in the patriarchal narratives, and we come to a stretch of Genesis that is a long stretch. It lasts about 11 chapters. It's what scholars refer to as the Jacob narratives. Pretty creative, huh? The Jacob narratives chronicle the stories of this pivotal patriarch. And now while his dad, Isaac, is kind of a lackluster patriarch, Jacob is a game changer. Because by the end of Jacob's life, Jacob is the one who has a name change, and it changes from Jacob to Israel, and he's the one who gives an identity to a whole people that we still know today as the nation of Israel. So we pay attention to the stories of Jacob, and I hope you know that as a, as a preacher, it is hard to know where to start and stop. There is so much in these 11 chapters where you and I could pitch a tent. We could camp out for days in so many of these rich stories. If I had the time, I would tell you about some of them. If I had time, you know what I would tell you? If I had time, I would tell you about how in the Jacob narratives, there is this theme that gets introduced about how God is always flipping the script on what we predict in this life. If I had the time, I would tell you how in the Jacob narratives we begin to see this theme recur that God is always surprising us by turning upside down the expectations that we have in life. For example, when Jacob is born, he's living at a time when the social norm was that the firstborn has all the rights and privileges. It's a, it's a theme that we call the primogenitor, which means it's the firstborn privileges, if you're firstborn, you get the double portion of the father's estate. If you're firstborn, you're the head of the family. And yet here, in a world where the firstborns are in the first place, God demonstrates a surprise. That God has a special place in God's heart for secondborns. For those who come in last, those who come in after and it's not just here in Jacob. If we look closely enough, we see it all through Scripture because if we pay close attention to the secondborns of the Bible, 
we see that God has a particular propensity to pay attention to those who are second born. You see, it's Abel and not Cain. It's Isaac and not Ishmael. It's Jacob and not Esau. It's Rachel and not Leah. That's Leah. Leah is a princess. That's something else. So, sorry. But the, the theme continues not just in individuals. It's not just that God has a special particular propensity for those who come in last, come in second. But he has a particular fondness for groups of those who come in second and last. That's why if you think of whole groups of people in the Bible, you see that there are those who are second-born, second-class citizens, we think, widows, orphans, resident aliens, strangers, the outcast. And God, all through Scripture, is revealed as the one who pays particular attention to those in those circumstances on the margin of life. If I were to ask you, What is your favorite parable of Jesus? I'm sure that among the first top two or three, you would probably recommend the parable of the prodigal son, a story of a second born who blew it and by all rights should have lost everything that he squandered. But because God's grace and God's mercy is abundant for the second born, for those who come in last, right here God flips the script And it causes us to imagine if we had the time we could talk about what that means for us. It means that God is always upsetting the social definitions and expectations about what it means to win and what it means to lose. Always turning upside down what we think it means to come in first and come in last. Is this not why Jesus said it the way he said it? He he said, therefore the last will be first. The first will will be last. Is this not why the Apostle Paul talks about this confounding truth about God when he puts it in 1 Corinthians this way, God chooses or God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God is always surprising us with how God turns upside down what it means to win and lose, to come in first, come in last. And if we had time today, I would tell you about all that. But since we don't, I won't. If we had time today, I would tell you what the Jacob narratives do in terms of repeated themes that seem to recur again and again. If I had time, I would point out how in these next three chapters that we just read, there are stories that sound eerily similar, eerily familiar to stories we already read earlier in Genesis. Did you notice how Isaac and Rebekah, after they are married, they start their pilgrimage, and guess what? Rebekah is barren. Does that sound familiar? Isaac's own parents, Abram and Sarai, start out their pilgrimage in barrenness. As we discussed a few weeks ago, because it is only in barrenness. That's where real faith pilgrimages begin. Because you can't have a walk of faith unless it begins in barrenness. Because you have to come to a place where you recognize, I can't produce. 
I can't produce. I have no answers for my life. I have no way out. My own way of salvation has failed me too many times. I am barren. I have nothing to offer. And when you get to that place of barrenness, that is when you grow a dependency upon the God who knows how to produce a life out of nothing. And here Isaac and Rebekah are repeating the same story. Did you notice in your reading of your homework, which I know you did read your homework, did you notice that shortly after their marriage they experience a famine and have to go to another place to survive? Sound familiar? Abram and Sarai experience a famine. They have to go to Egypt. <laughs> and they go to Egypt, and they, on the way into Egypt, that's the moment when Abram says to Sarai, remember this story? Sarai, you're a beautiful woman. You're so beautiful. They're going to look at me and say, what's he doing with her? So as we go into this country, let's tell them you're my sister. Remember that story? And then I said, it's because they were from Alabama and y'all didn't like it, you know. <laughs> well, lo and behold, you keep reading in the text that we have here, and the same pattern appears, and Isaac and Rebekah, they go through a famine, and they have to move to the land of the Philistines in the land of Gerar, and on the way in, Isaac, almost verbatim, says to his wife, you're a beautiful woman. And they're going to look at me and say, what's a guy like him doing with a, a woman like her? So let's tell them that you're my sister. Only this time it gets a little more steamy. Because then the king, Abimelech, one day is looking out of his window and he sees them making out. <laughs> and he has kind of a Ferris Bueller's Day Off kind of day. And he says, oh, so that's how it is in their family. That's, you know. And he calls them on it. And their ploy is revealed. And you know what we could do? If we had time, we could talk about unexamined generational patterns of behavior that get passed from one generation on down to the next. Self-defeating, self-destructive patterns of behavior that are addictions, forms of emotional, physical, spiritual abuse, inability to communicate, inability to relate, inability to, to manage money, inability... We could talk about things that we learn that get handed down from one generation to the next if they go unexamined and they continue to defeat and to destroy whole generations of people. We could talk about that. I mean, is that what Exodus is talking about in this passage when we say that the sins of the father are visited upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations? <laughs> You see, if we had time, what we could do is talk about how those self-defeating generational patterns of behavior continue from one generation to the next, but how in Christ every yoke and every chain, even the yoke and chain of family curses are broken and are set free. Yeah, if we had time, we'd talk about that. But since we don't have, we won't. If we had the time, come on, somebody. <laughs> if we had the time, what I would do is tell you something about water disputes. What in the world are you talking about? Because in chapter 26, there is this bizarre story about water disputes because the herdsmen of Isaac are moving through the land of Gerar, and they, they've got to get water for their herds. You know what they do? They dig wells. But they don't dig new wells. They dig the old wells that Abraham had already dug. But over the years, their enemy had filled up those wells with rocks and stones and dirt and had destroyed them. And so the herdsmen of Isaac 
are digging up those old wells, and now they're accessing water. And the herdsmen of the Gerar people, the, the, the land of Gerar, they enter into dispute. They say, well, that's not your water. You can't have access to that water. So they come to one well, and they dig up the old well, and then they argue about it. And because they argue about it, they give the well a name. It's called Essek, which means contention. So they move to another place, and they dig up another well, and they argue about it. And because they argue about it, they call that well Sitna, which means enmity. They go to a third well, and they don't argue about it. The third well, everybody's happy. Yeah, you can have that well. That's fine. You're good. And they call that well Rehoboth, which means broad places, room, space. If we had time, we could talk about how sometimes you have to go through seasons of contention and enmity before you get to broad spaces. How sometimes you have to go through the process, the arduous, difficult process of digging up old wells, of reopening old wounds to clean them out in order to get to a place where you are fruitful. The words that came after this third one were discovered. This is what the people said about it. Now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Well, something that you and I tend to forget is sometimes it takes contention, it takes enmity, struggle, hardship. And during those seasons, God is making room for us, creating space in our own soul to discover that it's been God bringing us through all along. Why is that important? It's because when we go through seasons of contention or we go through seasons of enmity, it's as if that's the only season we live in and we forget that Rehoboth is coming. We forget that God is up to something even when we can't recognize that God is up to something. And if we had time this morning, we'd talk about that. But since we don't, we won't. But what we will talk about is one verse. There is one phrase in this passage that we read a moment ago that honestly could preach itself if we let it. When Rebecca's about to give birth to twins, there is a description of the activity that's going on in utero. And this is how the scripture describes it. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The phrase that I want us to lock in on, to dial in, to zero in on, that that I want you to think about through the rest of this week is this one. Two nations are in your womb. Now, on the surface, you and I know exactly what the writer is up to here. We know that we're being told that she's going to have twins, and each of those sons will give birth to whole nations of people, and they'll war with one another. They're even starting that war in in her womb, and, and we get that on a literal basis. But the Bible is always better than just literal. There's more. There's a truth to be told about this, because the truth is there are two nations in your womb. 
And I'm not talking about Rebecca. I'm talking about you and me. There are right now two nations in your womb, in your interior life. Two natures. And you can call it a dozen different things. You can call it good and evil. You can call it light and dark. You can call it um, flesh and spirit. I choose to call it your true self and your false self. The true self is that part of you that is the best, most true version of who God had in mind when God designed you in your mother's womb, your true, authentic self. It's your sense of soul. It's who you are at your core. Your true self is that part of you that reflects the very image of God. And in you right now, the true self abides. It is there. You can't do anything about it. It may be buried beneath years and years of coverage, but it's there. It's the image of God, and it is alive within you, your true self. It's the part of you that reflects God, the image of God. In all of its truth and integrity, in all of its holiness, in all of its beauty, it's in you. But it's not the only kid in you. There's another twin in your womb. There's another one inside your interior life. It is your false self, your false self. Is, is that part of you, is anything in your life that tugs you away from all of that other stuff? Your false self is your projected self. What you attempt to project about yourself is trying to prove and demonstrate and strive and control your life. Your false self is, is everything that you do to try to demonstrate that you're the man, or you're the woman. And at present both of those selves both of those nations are at war in you at war in you this is what robert lewis stevenson had to say about it in each of us two natures are at war the good and the evil all our lives the fight goes on between them and one of them must conquer but in our own hands lies the power to choose what we want most to be, we are. And while that's Stevenson, I think that what he's attempting to do is say the very same thing that the Apostle Paul had to say in Romans chapter 7. Listen to what he said about it in Romans chapter 7. Paul says, I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me, within my interior life, within the soul of me, within my own womb. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. <laughs> Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. My guess is that you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? 
that there is within you right now two nations. Call it what you want, true self, false self, dark, light, evil, good, but it's at war. Call it Esau Jacob, if you will. It's like the, the old cowboy who one time told the visiting preacher, he said, preacher, I feel like, I feel like there are these, these two teams of horses that are, that are tied to my heart, and one team of horse, horses is pulling that direction, and, and one team of horses is pulling that direction. One is, is pulling me to true, and one is pulling me to false, one to good, one to, to evil. And the preacher said, well, which team is winning? And he said, well, I suppose whichever team I get up in the morning and say giddy up to. <laughs> right? There is at, at war right now within us this tension, this tension to live out of our truest God-given, hoped-for version of our lives and everything that tugs us from that. And the Jacob narratives give us an insight as to what it feels like, what it looks like for both of those twins to be growing in us at the same time because the dynamic that's underway in Rebecca's womb is the same dynamic that's underway in our interior life every day that we live. So if you'll indulge me, let's look at one or two places in the life of Jacob and Esau where we see that tension played out. The first is at their birth. It's a great story, isn't it? I mean, she gives birth, and, and we're told that Esau is born first and that Jacob is born <laughs> grabbing onto the heel of his brother. And what the ancient rabbis have done for ages is had fun with that passage, proclaiming that the reason he reached out and grabbed the heel of his brother is to pull him back in so that he may be born first. And that's why he got his name, isn't it? His name Jacob or Yaakov, which literally means the supplanter or the trickster. That's what his name means. He's the one who pulls the rug out from other people. And he spends the rest of his life attempting to trick, to connive, to swindle his way through life. Literally what the word Yahov means is heel grabber. Heel grabber. Your false self is the heel grabbing part of you. Is everything in you that from time to time attempts to grab at life and pull it and tug it and control it and be in charge of it. And what's, what's troubling for those uh, of, of us who live where we live and when we live is that that kind of thing sounds like a compliment, doesn't it? Well, he's a person who took life by the horns, right? Because part of the American dream that we've inherited for generations is, in a land of opportunity, if you have the individual strength to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and take care of yourself and your family, you can do anything. And that is great and fine, and that is absolutely appropriate. But what I'm, what I'm hearing in the passage here is that the way of faith, the way to walk in faith, this promised life that we're talking about, the promised life is not a grab the promised life is a grace. You with me? The promised life is not a grab, it's a grace. And we grab onto life and everything that we think matters because we assume that's our only pathway to the blessed life. 
The only way we'll live promised lives is if we make it ourselves, if we grab and, and achieve and acquire and accumulate, we'll grab our way through life. And all the while, we don't know what we're proclaiming, but here's what we're proclaiming. If I don't do this, I will not be blessed. But the promised life is not a grab. It's a grace. Can I ask you to consider the question, where is it in your life right now that you are prone to grab your way through life? Now, we grab because we're afraid. We grab and hold on to our securities. We hold on to our comforts, our jobs, our relationships. We cling to our children and never let them grow or develop and become who they Because if we do, if we let them go, then we'll have no controllable pathway to promise. But the promised life is not a grab. It's a grace. And the false self in you is that part of you that attempts to grab at the thing that God intended to be grace. There are two nations in you, and they're both at war. Another place when these twins grow up, they're born, but they raise them, they, they're raised and they become adults. And in their adulthood, there's a moment where Esau comes in from hunting, and he's starving. He's so hungry that he's hangry. He is just, he, he, he is starving to death, and Jacob has made food. Jacob has made a bowl of lentil stew. And Esau comes in and says, hey, give me some of that red stuff. That's what the text literally says. Give, give me some of that red stuff, which is a literary play on words. Because when he's born, he's born with red hair that covers him from head to foot. It's a literary play on words. Here's something that actually belongs to me. It's part of me, part of who I really am. And the literature here, the, the writer is attempting to trigger in the reader's mind, hey, what's about to happen is he's about to compromise who he has always been. I'm hungry, give me some of that red stuff. It already belongs to you. And yet Jacob says, well, then give me your birthright. Sell me your birthright and I'll give you some of this red stuff. The birthright which gave him the, the right to a double portion of his estate. The birthright which made him the head of the house when his father died. And Esau said, well, what good is it to me dead? I'm gonna die of starvation, so yeah, have my birthright. And the text says that he sells his birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. And it occurs to me that is exactly what the false self in us always does. Your false self will always tempt you to sell the thing that is most authentic about you for something that is temporary and expedient and convenient. And it looks so delicious because I'm so hungry, but in 30 minutes I'll be hungry again. See, every one of us has a bowl of lentils. The question I have for you, where in your life are you prone to trade your birthright, the thing that is truest and most eternal about you, for something that is temporary. Where in your life are you prone to sell your birthright for a cup of lentil stew? And your lentil stew, it will be different for you than it is for, for somebody else. Your lentil stew is whatever it is that you desire more than the promise of God in your life. Your lentil stew is whatever it is that you pursue with more energy and passion than you pursue the, the promise of God in your life. And we are prone to compromise that in a thousand ways and in 10,000 expressions every day. Why? Because in your womb, there are two nations at war. There's another moment, the last moment, at the end of the third chapter that we read, 
chapter 27, where Esau and Jacob are now adults, and Isaac is preparing to give a blessing to Esau, his firstborn. But now Isaac is old. His eyesight is dim. And Rebekah knows that Isaac is about to bless Esau, the firstborn, and she says to Jacob, Jacob, let's heel grab together. So Isaac says, tell Esau to prepare my meal and bring it in and feed me, and I will give him a blessing. And so Esau goes out to hunt game, and Rebekah and Jacob prepare a meal, take it to the old and blind Isaac. And Isaac says, come closer so I can sense you. He smells him and says, oh, you smell like the outdoors. My son, Esau, you smell familiar. The food, it tastes so good. It's my favorite dish. Come and let me feel your, your, your arms. And Esau, the hairy one, was not there. So Jacob covered his arms with the skin of an animal. Isaac reaches out and feels the hair of the skin on Jacob's arm and is deceived. He is heel-grabbed and says, Ah, yes, my son Esau. And he gives a blessing to Jacob. The false self is that part of you that from time to time will put on somebody else's skin. Because you assume that if I'm wearing somebody else's face, if I'm wearing somebody else's life, if I look a little bit more like somebody else, I will be more acceptable and will receive a blessing because I cannot possibly be blessed the way I am. The false self rises up in that way a thousand times in a week. The question I have for you is this. In what ways in your life, where in your life, are you prone to wear a more acceptable version of your life? in order to be approved. The truth is the false self will continue, will continue to tempt you to live someone else's life. But the promise of God is God sees you and desires to bless you as you are. And there are two nations at war in you right now, but the only way for your true self to live and for your false self to be contained is through prayer, through prayer. In fact, you will never get rid of your false self. It will be with you every morning when you brush your teeth. And I recommend that you brush your teeth. But every morning, the false self will be with you, attempting to do what the false self does so well, to tempt you to heal grab. to tempt you to put on other people's faces, to live out a story that is not your own. But what if you woke each morning and your prayer which began your day was this? God, I recognize that today I will be drawn like, like teams of horses drawing my heart in opposite directions, I, I recognize that I will be drawn to live out a false version of who you want me to be. And I'll pretend to have it all together. I'll pretend to be strong and mighty. I'll pretend to be the one who is winning and on top and achieving. But I'm asking you, Lord, this day 
to help me live out of my true self, to live in all vulnerability before you, to depend on you in ways perhaps that require practice. Because in the end, your promise is the, the only reliable promise. Let's take a moment and go to the Lord in prayer. God, we, we are so aware that there is this tension, but we rarely confess it. We're so aware that there is this battle happening in the heart, and, and yet we so rarely do anything about it except give in. Show us this day how, by faith, we live the life that you have called us to live, redeemed, promised, holy. Show us how to recognize the false self when it wakes us in the morning and show us how to put it to bed at night. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.